Last week, we started a conversation about families. What did you learn from your family of origin? How have you found new ways to relate to family and recovery? Welcome to episode 138 of The Recovery Show, and today we're going to talk some more about families. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we, we begin, we would like to state that though we have, the recovery show may be an, a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of family. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'll be your host today. Joining me is co-host Tom. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Tom. Thanks. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion of this topic, families. Following a short break, we'll talk about our lives in recovery, about how we practice these principles in all our affairs. We'll follow that with your email or voice contributions and some brief news about the podcast before closing. And I wanted to open with a reading. Uh, This is from the book How Al-Anon Works, which is our basic sort of text, if you will. I'm going to read parts from the chapter titled The Family Disease of Alcoholism. Awareness begins by learning about the family disease of alcoholism. Everyone in an alcoholic relationship, friends, coworkers, family members, as well as the alcoholic, plays a part in the dynamics of this disease. Then I want to continue on page 29. Those of us who haven't been associated with an alcoholic in many years can continue to react to alcoholic patterns of behavior as well. The low self-esteem that evolved as a result of past failures and episodes of abuse or neglect persists. For the love and attention we never received in the past, we look to people who are unavailable to us. We avoid conflict, but now we do so with employers, other relatives, or authority figures rather than with the alcoholic. Or we seek out conflict, believing that the best defense is a good offense. If we sense that a confrontation is coming, we create a diversion and pick a fight over some other issue. Many of us become so accustomed to living in chaos and crisis that we feel completely lost in its absence. Consequently, when everything is going well, we sabotage ourselves creating a crisis. This may make us miserable, but at least we know how to function in such a situation. We may also perpetuate a variety of compulsive behaviors without having any idea what prompts us to do so. The survival techniques we developed while living with the active disease have become a way of life. It may never have occurred to us that there is any other way to live. I don't know if that speaks to your experience, uh, Tom. Maybe you could give us a little uh, bit about what your background is, uh, what what kind of family you grew up in. Yeah, I, I could definitely relate with a lot of that as as, uh, as I can with a lot of the readings. You know, like, hey, that's that's me. That's really weird. Um, my the background of my family is that I didn't see any uh, addiction. It's it's taken um, some experience in the program to see where that addiction actually was. My father had quit drinking before I was born, so I never got to see it. What I did get to see was all the effects of uh, it and those character uh, characteristics of alcoholism is kind of described uh, in the reading there. Um, so I, I grew up in a house of chaos, and uh, I have seen the patterns of, of, of me seeking that out in some ways. I can say that now what it's like for me in the program is that chaos actually makes me feel rather uncomfortable these days instead of like, hey, this is where I belong and I feel comfortable. Did you see any codependency in 
in your family or can you look back and identify it now? I mean, obviously you probably didn't see it when you were growing up in it. I sure as heck didn't see the codependency in my family when I was growing up in it. Right. I saw a normal. That's what I saw. Yes. <laughs> uh, now I look back and see a lot of codependency. Uh, a lot of the the things that I struggle with today are definitely learned behaviors um, that I experienced um, that I'm sure was passed on from their parents and, and so on and so forth. I can definitely see that um, alcoholism and, and, and codependency along wrapped uh, together, you know, is, is kind of a, a family involved with the family disease of of it all. Would you describe uh, your father as a dry drunk? No, that's something that I'm still kind of working through, to be honest with you. I can, I can say that, that that's definitely a possibility, Mm -hmm. um, that I I can see, I can see that being applied to him and and being accurate. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What, what sort of behaviors did, did you learn or did you experience? Was there, I, I know in my family, even though I can't identify any any alcoholism or addiction in, in my parents' generation, in, in my direct family. Although, as I said last week, my mother's brother um, identifies as an alcoholic, so it's clearly there. My, my father had some anger issues, and, and I know that affected me uh, it, probably in ways that I still don't recognize, uh, but it definitely affected me in that I brought those issues into my behavior and, and sort of modeled a lot of my behavior on that, which is something I've been having to unlearn. Um, I don't know. Did you, did, do you see behaviors that you now see as negative that, that, or things that maybe affected you as a child? Because that, my father's anger definitely affected me. Uh, I learned uh, that if I couldn't do things his way, he was going to yell at me. And so uh, I, I learned to very quickly figure out what was the right way uh, and, and to avoid that. Yeah, I can definitely relate with what you, a lot of what you just said in your own experience. Yeah, anger is definitely something that I had going around me from, from both sides, uh, from, from both parents, rather, that added to that chaos I, I, I was referring to. Not just the, the anger, but um, the response to different things going on. Um, family stresses, whether it be financial or we're late for something, you know, it either was dead silent, which was that kind of anger, or it was loud anger. Mm. And so what I definitely learned was um, don't express your feelings. And when you do, it's not, it's like to one of the parents privately. And that, that feeling that you might tell them you're having could be actually challenged. Like you shouldn't be feeling that way. Mm-hmm. So kind of like what you were describing there, I kind of started figuring out what they were looking for in there and what, what they wanted to hear. What am I supposed to be feeling right now? Um, and, yeah. and that's definitely something that is, is very much so present in my life today. And it's very difficult to identify those things in the moment that it's happening. Were there feelings that, that you weren't allowed, I'll say allowed that, that you weren't supposed to have. And so if, I mean, you talked about sometimes if you expressed a feeling, it would be challenged. And, and I've heard from many open talks, people saying, wow, you know, there was only one, one emotion that was allowed in my family, which was maybe anger or something like that. Um, you know, I couldn't say I was sad. I couldn't say uh, whatever, uh, you know, all I could be was angry or okay. 
that's sort of an extreme, but it sounds like some of the, the you might have had some of that. What do you think? Yeah, not not at, quite as extreme as that, but there were there was definitely you know feelings of like sadness could be explained away. Like okay, mm-hmm. like if you look at it like this, you won't be sad. And um, so I guess they weren't. That was just and after a while, I learned I. I saw those as challenges and, and that maybe they were just more ex- ex- explanations. And, you know, the way I look at it is they were kind of doing the, the best they could with the, the tools they had, which weren't recovery tools, you know. Right, right. <laughs> by, by any means. And um, so, yeah, some of the some of the feelings would, would be sad uh, empathy in, in some cases. Mm. Um, feeling bad for somebody that got in trouble or uh, a friend of mine, you know, that I saw a lot of, I saw parents that were somehow or another stricter than mine. I was grow I grew up in a, in a pretty strict religious kind of home where, uh, parental disciplinary action was really, um, applauded, if you will. And, uh, mm-hmm. so like, the stricter the parents were, the better they were. <laughs> they were looked at, you know, in that in that uh, religious community. So I saw a lot of parents that were actually stricter than mine, and I saw those kids. And and what I saw was like suffering for it. And I would, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so I'd come to my parents with that, and you know, they would say it say things that would again explain it away like you know you're just lucky we're not like that to you be grateful you know. And I would hear things like that, and mm-hmm. and so I again I didn't know exactly. Um, how to deal with uh, what I know now is uh, uh, empathy. You know, I I stopped after a while feeling for those people. You know, I started feeling um, almost uh, like I was better than them because I had these parents, and I should be grateful for it. What about secrets? Did you did your family keep secrets? Now I know they definitely kept secrets. <laughs> As I said earlier, uh, everything was normal. I didn't know that there were family secrets, so to speak. I can see even now when I ask my mom about some family history stuff, they're still shying away. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about it. There there were things where it was like, well, oh, we don't talk about that? Or not even that explicit? Not that explicit. So I, it was really tough for me to see it as it was because it wasn't, those words weren't said. If those words were said, who knows what I would have thought, but it would have been easier to see. It was, it was even more cloaked, if you will. Uh-huh. Did, do you feel that you grew up in a loving family? I think that love was expressed in ways that I didn't recognize. Like, I just, I knew that my parents loved me, but I didn't know how they were expressing it. You know, I got a lot of um, yelling. When, when I, it seemed like when I wanted support, which was um, in, in times of um, extreme emotion, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, that's when I didn't get it. And so it left a big question mark in my head and it, and it definitely had its role in some pretty heavy rebellion against, against that, like, uh, and a uh, feeling of a need for independence at a, at a very young age. Do you have siblings? I, I, I do. They're very, uh, they're spaced out at ages much older than me. So by fifth grade, there were no siblings in the house. So you grew up probably in a in a sort of a different family than your than your older siblings did, huh? Definitely. How do you see that what you learned in your family probably mostly unconsciously, like you said, you thought it was normal. This is the way we behave in a family. This is this is how life is. Um, how do you see that that 
may have affected what your life was like before you came into recovery. Um, and maybe in relationships, in your ability to take life on life's terms. I, I, I definitely am a product of that environment um, throughout. And it's, it's not until recovery, um, not, and it certainly wasn't right at the beginning of recovery. You know, I feel like just, just now, just over um, around f- 15 months in, that I'm just now starting to recognize it and, and, and under and, and see those patterns and be able to do anything about them, you know? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're still sort of figuring out what it is. Completely. What you're saying. Completely. How about needing or desiring to control other people to control what's going on around you? Do you see that happening or feeling out of control when things are not going the way you want them to? Yeah, I was definitely controlled a lot in my young age, and I see myself like seeking that um, control in my life from other people. And and in some ways, or in some sometimes, I seek to to gain the control back. Mm-hmm. Um, and and like you said, that's where the the helplessness <laughs> uh, comes into play. And the um, you know, and and sometimes I take a look at a situation; it just seems like it's out of control. And that's kind of when program kicks in and, you know, says, well, I can't control anything but what's going on inside of me. And, uh, you know, I can, and then I can look into my bag of tools and see what I, what I can have, uh, or what could help me with that particular situation. I can make phone calls and, uh, you know, get to a meeting and just, you know, like I said, look at those tools and every situation requires a different set of tools or a group of them or one individually. Yeah. Um, Something you said, seeking people to control you, uh, that actually rung a bell for me in that I seek approval for whatever. And I can see this in all different aspects of my life. And again, as with many of my particular character defects, the place where I often see them most clearly is at work. Uh, And I think it's Maybe partly because I'm sure they're happening in other places in my life, but in other places in my life, there's all this like emotional entanglement happening with the other people, but at work, it's not. And so these behaviors stand out more clearly for me. I can look back over the years. I would consider myself a leader in my job. I've been with the company that I'm with basically since it was founded 20 years ago. Uh, And been there all along. I feel a lot of ownership about what we do. We were five people when, when I joined and now we're about 300 people, but I still feel a lot of ownership. And, but at the same time, whenever I want to do something new or different, I don't feel comfortable until I've gotten somebody else to say, yeah, that looks right. That looks okay. Let's go that way. Uh, and I didn't connect this with this idea that of wanting somebody else to control things for me, but it, it, it that really is a form of that, that I'm looking for that parent figure who's going to say, yeah, it's okay. You're going to be okay. You can do this thing. Uh, and that's, see, this is why I love these conversations because, you know, I had a conversation with Mara last week and some of the things she said triggered talks about particular behaviors. And now what you're saying triggers thoughts about other stuff. And, and now it's like, 
be interesting to see if I can look back. And I, I, I know that when I was a child, I was always, I was definitely seeking approval. I would maybe not in the sense of, Hey, is it okay to do this? But Hey, look at this thing. Isn't this wonderful? And, and of course my parents would say, Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, and, and so then I got older and people weren't saying that so much or they weren't saying that directly. And it's like, well, I gotta, I gotta ask for it. Right. Uh, uh, but it's also, it's also for me, it's an insecurity in, in my own ability to, to do things that, well, I think this is a good idea, but maybe it's really a horrible idea and I'm just not seeing that. And I need somebody else to tell me it's a good idea before I'm, I'm, I'm willing to buy into it. And that's sort of an insecurity in myself. Um, and I, again, I think that goes, I can see that going way back in, into my childhood. So do you see that maybe you, you started to form, you formed relationships that were maybe sort of replacing the control that your parents had on your life with control from somebody else? Yeah. I think that when I was in my rebellious phase, I was looking for the opposite. Somebody Mm. that wanted, Mm. maybe wanted um, me to control them or make decisions for them. Okay. And so finding that comfortable in the middle has been pretty, 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 pretty tough. Um, but I, I'm seeing now that I'm more like letting go of, uh, of control situations that the, the natural gravity in where I feel the most comfortable is with somebody that is, is maybe in a way adding structure, if you will. Um, you know, I said I'm seeking control, but another, uh, a positive way to look at control is, is actually structure. Right. A controlled environment to me is one that I know the boundaries and I know where, and, and so that's something I, I, I seek because it's safe. You know, you, you, you can know what to expect and, and, uh, you know, kind of some of the things we were talking about earlier, though, uh, you know, in the emotional sense isn't the best thing, but when boundaries are drawn, I learned at a young age on what, on how, how to react to those things. Um, and, and now I'm, I'm changing that into a, a different kind of thing, you know, and, um, recognizing when people are setting boundaries and how to respect those things and how to really appreciate a good structure in my life. Mm-hmm. From what you said about sort of the the social um, group that you grew up in, it sounds like there were probably very strict boundaries set. Limits, maybe a better word uh, for that environment. I don't know. What do you think? There was boundaries, just like crazy boundaries, some places, and then like very much so the lack of them and in others. Like a family unit, you know, has its boundaries as far as like people coming into that family unit, but everything's up for grabs as far as what do we discuss with each other is your, your problems, your problems are the family's problems. Um, that's when like some embarrassment stuff kicks in or like, um, look at a sibling. Let's talk about their problems and let's learn from them. Uh, could be an example mm-hmm. or, or involved in that is some shaming, you know, like mm-hmm. that's, we're embarrassed because of that behavior. We don't ever want to see that from you. Um, so those were, those were some things that. I can see that I started reflecting myself and those are things that I'm definitely trying to put a reverse on uh, is uh, is that discussing other people's issues and not trying to see them necessarily from their standpoint, but um, kind of that uh, it's almost like my, my parents and other people around me had that confidence you were talking about in their opinion, being the only one that mm-hmm. mattered. So again, there's that, there's that balance um, right. um, that I see. Yeah. The other thing that I heard there is, the way in which 
I, I'll say your parents, okay, the way in which your parents expressed what happens when you go outside the limits that are set. You know, you talked about shaming, and is that something that you maybe brought with you forward, or you know, what happened when you when you when you went outside the boundaries when you rebelled? I, I kind of moved my I moved my um, position in the family closer and closer to black sheep. I guess the the further I moved away from those, and in some ways, I felt I was adding some level of chaos to my life because again, I, I thrived in those situations. I felt safer because I was away from that chaos, you know. Mm. Um, the only thing that kind of redeemed me with the the family in some ways was how they, what they considered successful. Um, though all these things I rebelled against, they said, well, he's doing good in his career or his job and he owns a house and he's doing this. So they had like these points of hi- highlight points about me. That kept me just outside that complete black sheep uh, where they wouldn't talk to me anymore and they would help me uh, once in a while with, with things if I needed it. And, and those are the things that they talked about to other people. There was these hi- highlight reel um, of those things that they're, they're you know, pr- proud of, kind of. I think one of the things that I've learned in recovery about boundaries um, is that I need to, when I'm setting boundaries, I need to state them clearly and that if I can express my reason for setting the boundaries. And, and I think I heard uh, in, in your early discussion of, of the family that some of these limits, they might've just been sort of arbitrary. I mean, I want to come back to this question of, so this is what you learned. You learned that in your family, that there were these things that they were just stated. You don't do this. You do this, and how that maybe came with you, even through your rebellion, or how you maybe decided to throw them away and not have any boundaries. I think that um, I you referred back to that rebellion. I I did the opposite boundaries. So like all the things, the strict things that were were boundary set, such as uh, some of the deeply religious. Boundaries that they set, like uh, malls, can't go to malls, and then uh, movies, and um, you know, you don't go to even restaurants that are serving alcohol. And that was a boundary. Um, there was no even cooking alcohol in my house. But so those boundaries were the ones that I threw away, um, and I went very extremely towards those things. The other boundaries that you know, other people, the family's problems are everybody's problems, and we're going to openly discuss them and criticize them. Those are the ones that I kept a little bit more sacred. I, <laughs> I definitely, I can say that there were times that I did catch myself gossiping, but it was something I was sensitive to be- uh-huh. because of those things. So uh-huh. if you look at those boundaries that were set, I'm still growing out of doing the opposite of them. To be quite frank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's move forward into into recovery. And I don't remember um, if we talked last time about where you are in the steps. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I do work the the AA program is the the program that I've been working the longest. Um, so I have gone through all twelve steps there. So I've I've done the inventory process and and have talked that uh, about the inventory with uh, with my with my sponsor there. I'm I'm pretty freshly new to the tools of, of Al-Anon. Uh, well, less than seven months, that's for sure. So mm-hmm. uh, the the tools that I've learned from the the programs are. Um, 
are pretty incredible in, in, in to generalize it all. Um, but the, the, the tools that I'm learning in, in Al-Anon are, are the ones that are helping me with the day to day interactions with other people, uh, in work. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of times those coworkers are the people you see, uh, as much as your loved ones, if not more. Sometimes, yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> most of the time that I'm at the house, uh, you know, not working, I'm sleeping. So, I mean, if you look at the hours racked up, I'm, I spend more time with coworkers recognizing things and where my limits are and what can I, can't I do. Um, and, and again, like we were talking about earlier boundaries that that's really helped me in, in, a lot in recognizing patterns in my own life. That's where, you know, working my, the fourth step really, really helped, helped me there. And I took a really long time on my fourth step, m- much longer than any long timer will ever suggest, you know, uh, or really probably anybody. Uh, I took, you know, I think f- four months close to <laughs> my fourth step. I, I just, I just want to say, um, the first time I did the fourth step, well, I did it with a group. So we were, we were working through, through, um, uh, our book called, uh, Paths to Recovery. We were working through the fourth step in that book and, and we took, I think, six months to get through step four in the book uh, as a group, meeting once a week. So, you know, whatever. Uh, the second time I did the fourth step, I did it from Al-Anon's Blueprint for Progress, which has 26 chapters and 90 pages. And I don't know how many questions. There's room to write in there. So it's not as bad as it sounds just from the page count, but it still is like really thorough. Oh, my God. Um, and that, I think I spent more than a year on that. I would work. A couple, three, four, maybe, if I was really on a roll, questions, basically once a week. Uh, and it took me, I think, more than a year to get, to get through. I'm just going to say, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm not the slowest person in the program for doing that either. <laughs> so it might have felt slow to you, but from where I'm sitting, not so bad. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's kind of uh, funny that that just brings up a contrast that I – one of many between the two programs is that um, – in, in AA, they there is a group. The herd is sometimes they refer to. You know, they push you and they want constant. Che- they they'll check up on you and they'll ask you. and And if you don't want to answer, they're going to violate some boundaries there. So, uh, <laughs> so they're they're not <laughs> they're they're not all that familiar with certain things like boundaries and. Uh, I felt like I was traveling at a natural pace and, and my sponsor actually was really, he believed that too. What he wanted me to avoid was being stagnant in the program and, and not working the steps. And and so that's what I, um, I can say there was probably some points of uh, where I was stagnant, but I made sure that that was my priority that, that once a week I would work on it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is why it took some time. And I can tell you, I got a lot of gifts and really, and I consider them blessings. And I talk about a lot at the tables and in, in AA, um, about the, the time I spent there, I did learn so much, um, about how to handle problems that would arise and to be able to, um, maybe not in the moment, that was very much so a, a practiced thing, but within a fairly short period of time, be able to see what my part was in that problem and eventually i would come to to learn how to 
go back and make an amends or uh, and figure out what amends was appropriate for that that action and and if i hadn't taken so long in that fourth step i wouldn't have learned those things in that order and and uh some other things were just just came so naturally and, and made the program really easy for me yeah i think and i'm i'm going to digress slightly from the family theme for a moment i think one of the one of the problems that those of us who are in Al-Anon have uh, is really understanding and seeing what our problem is. A lot of us come into Al-Anon because we're profoundly unhappy or despairing or fearful or angry. We, we, we recognize, maybe recognize that. Or we come into Al-Anon because we want to fix that SOB. Our problem is not as obvious. Uh, and what we need to do about it is not as obvious. It's really easy to say, all I got to do is not drink. It's a lot harder to say, all I got to do is not be controlling and codependent. What? What? I don't get that. You know? Um, so I think that may be one of the reasons that, that we don't push so hard and that we take a lot longer, a lot of us to get, get through those steps because we don't see the problem. We don't understand why we need those 12 steps. I think that's one of the things that, that I've seen in Al-Anon and my experience in Al-Anon. What I also have come to see is that, in particular, the inventory and sharing the inventory and getting in the practice of doing that in step 10, taking a regular personal inventory, it's, it, it, it becomes a part of who I am and how, and how I am that makes it a lot easier for me to step back a little bit and say, what's going on here in me? Uh, and to start to identify some of these patterns that I brought with me from earlier in my life, whether it was family or friends or early relationships, early romantic relationships in particular, probably set some patterns for me that I didn't realize I was carrying forward. And, you know, I want to get back to that place, you know, the very first time I was in love. Okay. I want to feel that again. Okay. That doesn't really happen for most of us, you know, because um, the very first time is, is always different. And, but being able to start to identify what's going on and then maybe not knowing how to fix it. And that's, where for me, step six and seven come in about being ready and asking my higher power to help me with these shortcomings, these character defects, these things that, that are not working for me now is another way that we, we sometimes put it in the Al-Anon program, you know, that these things that we now consider character defects or shortcomings are things that probably we learned to survive in some earlier situation. With that sort of as a context, when you look at some of the things that you learned growing up in your family and the ways in which you interacted in your family, how do you see those changing in recovery? And maybe start with the the taking other people's inventory thing, because that's something that, that we really bring out uh, around the tables or, uh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to that, the closer the person is to you, the easier it is to take their inventory, I've learned. Because you're probably getting some of them taking yours. So, you know, it's just that old habit that, that might be one of the hardest ones to, 
to to put away or to unlearn, if you will, is that when when you get hurt, you do the same thing, or you know, you you, you hurt the person back, and that's like one of those the worst uh, things that that I do. And I I I wish that there was something that I could unlearn quicker, if if you will. Um, so that's 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 one of the things. Looking back, were you aware that this was something that you did, and and has the re- at least the recovery process helped you become more aware of that? So you you see it and say, oh, this is something I don't want to do, even though I'm doing it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the older I got, um, even before I got into recovery, I started recognizing those things, and again, just recognizing it is only you know, a part of what it takes to, 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 to take action. Um, I knew all about it and I had no, no care to actually make any change about it. Again, that was, uh, a learned safety thing. It was a, a tool of survival, I, I think is what you called it. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what it was. So that was my safety blanket. I felt protected when I, I had to uh, unfortunately use those tools, you know, I did it cause I had to, you know, um, it was kind of the feeling and, and justification in, in a lot of circumstances. Now, I don't feel so justified about it. You know, I feel like there are other tools I have to protect myself. Um, and, 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 you know, boundaries is one of them for sure. Yeah. No, that's a really good point about that we do things because we don't feel safe at the moment. Um, because we didn't feel safe maybe as a child when we were in you know a similar emotional place or uh, something like that and that was how we dealt with it then what else do you see in in your recovery that is changing from what you learned in your family what your family did maybe you, whether you liked it or not or whether you saw it or not um, that you see now I think education is one of them. I think that that's, might sound like a weird one, but that kind of go, goes along with um, the family secrets, right? The things we didn't talk about. There's a lot of what ifs this happened, what if that happened, you know, had, had happened in my in my family. But, you know, that's not really what I focus on. I focus on what um, I can do different moving forward, and, and that is to to know about the different diseases, know and learn about codependency and, mm-hmm. and, and learn and know about alcoholism and, and how it affects the family unit. And, and, uh, and if I, you know, I ever have children, then that would be something, you know, I would do, you know, and, and there, without recovery, there is no way I would ever know, yeah. know that or, or have a desire to want to do that. Do you consider your recovery community a family? Cer- certainly, um, in, in some ways, and you know, the, when, when you talked about people sort of swarming on you and, and holding you accountable for stuff, that sounded very much like a, a family kind of an interaction there, you know? It sounded v- very <laughs> much like my old family with, with the lack of some boundaries. Ooh. Uh, so it, was, it wasn't always the most comfortable thing. So um, I can say that I was slow. I've, I've been slow to let certain people in, you know, and the people that are really in, they're in, you know, and they are. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of that. Uh, I have a lot of acquaintances in in the program, and a lot of people I give high fives to, and uh, and then there's the ones that are really in in the, in the family, and that's a slow growing process for me. Yeah, yeah. How about your relationship now with your family of origin? Has that changed with recovery? 
Have you changed in the way you relate to them? Have you changed in the way that you can be with them or don't want to be with them? It's probably one of the things that at this point brings a lot of the potential of joy in the future. I I am very much using the the programs of recovery to to help me um, have a better family relationship and make effort on not isolating myself from them as I've done in the past. You know, as they regain trust in the things that I say and the follow throughs and, and, and things like that, um, you know, they, they are who they are and, um, I can't control that, but I, I can do my part, which is, um, something I've done more recently is let them know, like, Hey, I want to see you guys twice a month and Hey, can we set up a normal thing? And if it's not followed through with, that's okay. But I would like to make an effort on my part, you know, to do that. And I've done that with several family members and, you know, that was for me as much as it was for them. Um, because then I, I can't go back and do the old default of blaming them for not seeing that, you know, us not seeing each other. Um, I can say, I'd like to see you, I, you know, like I would have liked to see them more, but at least I know I did my part and, and I don't have to carry around a resentment. I don't have to walk around with a chip on my shoulder and, and have something to bring up negative with them. Um, I, I know I did my part in the part I can control. Do you set boundaries on yourself on maybe the amount of time you spend with them, the sort of situations that you that you are willing to be with your family in? Is that an issue? Um, it hasn't been an issue yet. Boundaries of myself in general is something that's probably something I struggle with uh-huh. as, as in a whole. As a whole, you know, I put boundaries on other people um, interacting with me and, and different things of that and that nature. But the boundaries, uh, as far as like time that I spend on different things, is, is something that I struggle with. Um, it's 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 been a, a, a slow process, I can definitely say, mm-hmm. but. I haven't had a lot of uh, instances, as I said, there's not a lot of um, uh, active addiction in my family. Just dysfunction. Just dysfunction. <laughs> and there's plenty of that. Um, so there's definitely there's definitely a lot of times that, you know, I, I see it and it's almost like amusing to me in some, in some uh, aspects. And I can just kind of quietly chuckle like, wow, they're, they're feeling pretty good about that. And I'm not, um, and, and I'm not involving myself and I know I can put a stop to that as far as I don't have to play that part anymore. And, 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 you know, whether they're comfortable with it or not, I'm not quite sure yet. I think they're not quite sure about what I'm doing either. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's okay. Cause I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing my thing and I think I'm doing it right. So, yeah, that's a really important phrase there. And that's okay. You know, that, you're doing what you need to do for your serenity, for your health, and you're willing to meet them as far as they can come towards where you are now. It sounds what is what you're saying, I think. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And that that's that's a hard thing when it comes to family to say, I'm here and you can accept me here, and if you don't accept me here, that's okay because I'm gonna stay here. Uh and so, you know, I see, I see a lot of recovery in that, in those four words, and that's okay. Three words. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, what might you say to somebody who's, you know, coming out of, coming into recovery, had, had a chaotic family, um, 
growing up uh, about what recovery might might do to help deal with with the baggage they brought with them from their past. I, I think the the classic "keep coming back" is a is a good one. I've referred to a slow process a few times. Just in being at the tables, I've seen such different um, speeds of recovery that you have to keep coming back and 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 you have to see the hope in the message. You know, I I carry hope. I. I'm just hitting just the the tip of recovery. <laughs> I've just gotten started and I have so much hope. And and when I go to meetings, I think that's what I leave leave with. You know, I can't say that every meeting's exactly uh even as far as what I leave from it, whether it's a direct message or a uh a lesson, if you will. Mm-hmm. But what I can always say I I leave with is uh, a message of hope. And and if you don't get that message of hope, you you got to again keep coming back cuz they're there and and there's a slogan I'm not thinking of it right now, but uh it kind of speaks to listening for um messages and everything. And hmm. whether it's from a long timer or from um from a new somebody that's new you can you know you can start to hear the lessons and 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 stories of hope and and so if you're if you're just coming into the the program there's there's so much that it offers as far as looking for serenity that word is not even a word that i even was not in my vocabulary um, <laughs> until I came into the program and, and certainly wasn't anything I was seeking. And just the fact that people spoke of it as something that they're much closer to mm-hmm. um, is something that was really encouraging to me. And I would suggest that you listen for, for something like that, a, a message of encouragement from from that the program. Thanks. Um, I just want to close with, with a couple of sentences from, again, from how Elanon works. This is in the discussion of step one. Um, it says, we may never have the family of our dreams or win the love of those who have no love to give, but our program does offer us hope because it is all about change. After a short break, we'll continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. And uh, so I, I talked last week about how I had found a bunch of dysfunctional family songs, and so I'm trotting out a few more of them this week. Uh, the first one is uh, from Eminem. It's called Cleaning Out My Closet. And I'm going to read somebody else's description of this. Uh, I, although, man, when I listened to that song, I was like, yeah. <laughs> it, he is definitely... Um, Definitely talking about that dysfunctional family. It says, On this track, Marshall Mathers gives us another peek behind the curtain at the M&M show, which is filled with drugs, absent fathers, and Munchausen syndrome by proxy. M was able to prevail and wrote Grammy-winning albums about how he thinks his mom sucks. Years later, when Eminem himself became a parent of a teenager, he apologized to his mom on the track Headlights for spewing so much hate her way, teaching us that you only get one family, and sometimes it's best to forgive and forget instead of harping on the past. And I don't remember the exact lyric in the song now, but there definitely is a lyric even in this song where he's sort of uh, apologizing to his mom uh, and and recognizing that, you know, in some way she did she did the best she could even in this horrible situation. And you, you can listen to it at the, on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 138.
In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and in our lives this week. So today, uh, I went to my uh, my Saturday morning meeting. We're recording this on a Saturday, and we our topic was Tradition 4, which is about uh, how groups are autonomous except when uh, they affect Al-Anon or AA as a whole. Most of the discussion around the table was how we can take this tradition into our personal lives. And in the past recovery book, there were, there were some questions that struck me this morning about how do I take responsibility for my own thoughts and actions and how do I let other people take responsibility for their own thoughts and actions? And those are like the two different sides of my, my codependency to a, to a large extent that, um, I would really love to blame somebody else for the the things that are happening in my life. Uh, you know, you made me feel bad. Okay. Is, is I think the, the canonical expression of that feeling. And on the flip side, um, I want to fix everybody. And if you're not doing things the way I think you ought to be doing them, uh, I want to, I want to change that. And, and so those are both things that, that I've learned, uh, to move away from, uh, in the program. Uh, and yesterday, the day before, earlier this week, let's say, uh, I had my finally had my uh, annual review meeting with my boss, uh, which uh, is again I like to say that's when your your boss does your fourth step for you and then tells you your fifth step, and uh, it went pretty well. We're we're getting closer in alignment about how we see, how how we each see me in the mm-hmm. in the context of work. Uh, we both agree that that I still have uh, some things I need to work on in the area of interpersonal relationships, but that it is improving uh, in the in the area of communication skills. I went from needs to improve to meets expectations. So hey, that's you know we were both sitting at meets expectations this year, so that's good. He still pointed out some areas that uh, where where my anger comes out, and that's uh, that's a thing that I know I have to work on. But we talked about. After that, we talked about, he said he would like to get away from the annual performance review to a more continuous process. Uh, And he said, actually, he'd been working with one of his direct reports this year, where every time they met every couple of weeks, he would say, so uh, what have you done in the last couple of weeks that helps to move us forward as an organization? Uh, And what have you learned in the last couple of weeks that helps you do your job better. And, and he said that out of that process goals, which, you know, one of the, one of the things that's really hard is, you know, sort of the beginning of the year, you say, okay, I have a goal to do this and a goal to do that. You know, I'm going to like get X percent better at whatever. Um, he said that, that out of that process of sort of continual, I'm going to say continual inventory, although he didn't call it that because he doesn't have that vocabulary. Um, he said the goals came out of that, like just sort of grew organically. And I, and I thought, um, you know, this is the difference for me. If I look at it in a 12 step perspective, this is the difference between doing a fourth step every now and then. I've done two fourth steps in the almost 14 years I've been in the program. Okay. Uh, versus step 10, which is continue to take personal inventory is the first part of that, that if I take if I take inventory daily or weekly, it's a lot easier for me to remember what happened, remember how I felt about it, uh, 
both the good and the bad. If I wait till the end of the year to say, well, what did I do this year? How did I succeed? How did I fail? What do I want to improve? It's really hard for me to look back over the whole year and pull stuff out. Uh, you know, and the way we do our, our process is we, we write our own self-evaluation with exactly the same set of questions that our boss is going to be answering for us. Uh, mine were really short because it's like, um, you know, I think I did okay on this and there's some areas where I still need to improve. Uh, and, and he had like specific examples. I'm like, you know, I can't do that. I can't do that. If I do that once a year, I would much rather do that every couple of weeks. Like, how are we doing on communication in the last two weeks? How are we, you know, what, what have I done that moves the, 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 the company forward? And what have I learned that makes me a better person? I can maybe do that every two weeks. I, it's really hard to do that once a year. And so that actually like that meeting with my boss, which I always like, I don't know why, but I go into that meeting knowing that I am valued by the company and figuring they're going to fire me. Okay. Just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is, this is where I come from. This is how I roll. Uh, and, uh, and so to get that insight out of that meeting, and maybe even if we, if I don't do it with my boss, maybe this is something that I can do with myself. Um, on a more, on a more formal basis. Um, I'm pretty good on the step 10. We talk about sort of the, the gut check inventory, which is like, Oh man, I just did something wrong. Or, Oh man, I'm just about to do something wrong. Like I'm pretty good with that. Um, daily, not so good. Uh, you know, sort of, and the sort of the, the, the looking back and saying, starting to see patterns and that, that takes some work. Uh, you know, once a week, I talk about what my week was like, what I did in recovery. So there, there's some inventory right there, I guess. Anyway, I think that's where I'm going to stop. Um, how about, how about you, Tom? How's your, uh, your week, your last few weeks been, uh, in your recovery program? Uh, how do you see using recovery in, in your life? Um, I, I liked your, uh, <laughs> I can relate a lot with your review process there. Um, I, I'm starting, uh, and I don't want to talk too much about work, but I'm starting a company. So I'm like kind of in these positions where mm. I need to actually review my contractors. Mm-hmm. In, in that process, I have to do an inventory, if you will, on myself and, yeah. and where do I need to improve? And I, I, I try to have, a, um, an open communication with the guys on, on, um, what might make them, um, a better employee to me? You know, what do they need from me? And, mm-hmm. And um, I think that the tools of recovery are really helping me be and grow, I guess, grow into, into a better employer. Um, and, and so that's, that's one thing just in kind of re- relating with what you just talked about. It kind of hit close to home for me. Um, the meeting I went to uh, last Sunday um, had a, a reading and, and it talked, uh, it was the January, January 10th, uh, reading in the Currents to Change book. And I'm not going to go and read the whole thing, but, um, it talks a lot, a lot about, um, stress and, um, succumbing to worry and, uh, the what ifs and the should haves and, uh, and, uh, shutting out the noise and, and, uh, how we go about doing that. And the funny thing was, is that on that day I had gotten, uh, a work email that um it it seemed to have came from a um a frustrated customer and there was a lot going on in the room um at the time and I looked down and I read about one paragraph 
and then I was brought back, which is, I kind of left the now, if you will. I kind of left the present. I got sucked right into that email and somebody called me back out and I snapped out of it and I, and I decided, yeah. And I, well, I had this feeling of dread when I left that moment. <laughs> um, and when I was called back out, I said, yeah, you know what? I don't have to succumb to this. I don't have to work. I can reinforce this boundary. This is not a time to work. And, um, it wasn't too much longer, um, from that time that I had, I read that daily reading. I was like, of course, you know, that's my higher power speaking directly to me. And, uh, those are the encouraging things in the program. I was really happy to talk about it at the meeting that night. And, and, and it's been something that I carry throughout the week. And here I am at the tail end of that week. And I can say that me taking a step back and enforcing boundaries that I'm trying to, to learn to set on myself are really helping me manage worry and manage my own personal expectations on, you know, so what do I expect out of myself? What do I expect on the people, uh, out of the, from the people around me? And, uh, where are the boundaries on that? That reading had a lot made me think a lot of uh meditation and how often do I do it and what does meditation mean to me I think a lot about you know step 11 has to do with pr- prayer and and meditation and to me the prayer is the asking maybe for some of those goals that you're trying to achieve in that week or uh, maybe through you know doing your step 10 you see some something that you're struggling with that week so for me I take that a quiet time after and I listen and I, I ask for direction. Um, if I'm doing it at the end of the day, which isn't very often, I'm more of a beginning of the day, um, meditation type. So, I, you know, I ask for direction in that day and that's been helping me with the work worries. And, and that's where most of my worries are coming from. There are a couple other, um, major ones, but if I took all those other ones away, they would probably still not quite equal up to what I, I get from work. Um, there, there's a lot riding on me, so to speak, you know, and, uh, I feel a lot of responsibility to myself and to the others around me, the more people that it, it involves. So, um, the, the program helps me through, through with my daily life, daily interactions and, and, uh, whether it's in a, a work environment where there is no recovery around me <laughs> or, or very little of it, um, to, you know, um, to the, to the newfound family in recovery, um, to the, uh, the family of origin, um, throughout the day to day, uh, operations, if you will. Um, I see the longer that I'm in the program, it just coming out, um, and, and, I, I'm I'm having the opportunity to practice these principles, and it, it's a really exciting thing for me. Thank you, thank you. So, upcoming topics include looking at the this uh, the gifts of Al-Anon, which are expressed in uh, the book from Survival to Recovery on page two hundred and sixty-nine. Finally, got that reference in hand, and looking at the first one of those which says we will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we may never be perfect, continued spiritual progress will reveal to us our enormous potential. Well, that's quite a promise. Uh, How do you see this gift appearing in your life, or are you still waiting for it? Hmm. Another topic that I've been thinking about is we. 
the first word of the first step. What does it mean to you that this is a we program? How does hearing others' experience and sharing your own lead to recovery? To me, this is the core and the mystery of our program. We welcome your thoughts. You can join the conversation. Please leave us a voicemail or send an email with your feedback or questions. And Tom, how can people send us feedback? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of families or any of the upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. And you can get all the information that you need, hopefully, about the show, including notes for each episode, uh, an occasional blog, links to the music we talk about, links to other recovery podcasts and websites at our website, which is therecoveryshow.com. If you'd really like to join the conversation, consider being a guest host like Tom is today. Uh, We can do this in person if you happen to be in Southeast Michigan or by phone, Skype, Apple FaceTime, Google Hangout, and and I'm sure there are other electronic media we could use. Email feedback at therecovershow.com if you're interested. And got a little bit of mail, but before we look at it, uh, I want to talk about another song and we'll take a little break. And the second song is We're a Happy Family by the Ramones. And uh, again, the description I found of this uh, online says, This tongue-in-cheek tale of life in Queens features a drugged-up mom, gay dad, and fly-eating baby, which might actually make your brood seem normal by comparison. Even in this schizophrenic New York family where their troubles never end and there are no Christmas cards to send, everyone's thankful that they have each other. got an email from Gretchen writing about last week's family episode. She says, Hi, Spencer and Mara. Thanks so much for your episode on family of origin. I have so many thoughts. Both of you said things that really resonated with me. In recent months, I've been trying to excavate and find some of the memories that are stuffed down or lost. My childhood wasn't one of abject trauma, but neither of my divorced parents had recovered from their childhoods, and that caused a lot of stress and chaos. My father had an alcoholic and then dry drunk dad, who we adored and feared, and still has anger issues he hasn't been able to sort through. My mom had an abusive non-alcoholic mother who later disowned her, and basically opted to be somewhat neglectful and live out her adolescence with five kids in tow. As the fourth of five kids, I ended up pretty out of touch with my reality and any feelings. I always knew I used denial as a coping mechanism, but it was a shock to find out in therapy that I was supposed to feel anything about events in my childhood. I discovered... It happened is not a feeling. And when, then I discovered that there were a lot of bad feelings I just hadn't known how to deal with. In recent months, after the situation with my alcoholic husband got incredibly dire, I had to spend more time piecing together what got me here. It's been a relief to find my family to be supportive of my journey, even when they don't understand or agree with it. I've started to face the ways my mom hurt me. I'd always wanted to protect her because she's super sweet and talk to her about them. I've talked more with my siblings about what they do and don't remember. It's limited for all of us. I've recommended that my dad try listening to this podcast. My therapist and recovery materials have really helped as I move along step by step. 
So thanks again for covering such an important topic and speaking so openly. I'm glad you're planning on doing more on family. In the future, I would love to co-host, but I'm only a couple months into recovery, and I'm still learning a lot. Best, Gretchen. And, and thank you, Gretchen, for that. Wow. Yeah, recovery is the place to be, I think. Any thoughts on Gretchen's letter, Tom? She had a lot of her good perspective for, for being so early into the program. I think I think that was what I kind of got out of that. Uh, it was pretty impressive. I, I agree. I agree. We got a voicemail from Christy. Hey, Spencer. It's Christy I'm from Texas. I was just listening to your New Year's show, and you were asking for ideas, so I thought I'd throw one out there. Um, something about life after divorce. Um, life after divorcing an alcoholic, and especially one who doesn't think he's one, one that's in denial. So I have been in Al-Anon for about a year now and spent most of last year making the decision to divorce. It was a gut-wrenching decision and such an impossible choice, but after lots of therapy, uh, marriage counseling, it was the right decision. And what I thought was um, the hardest part, which was actually making the decisions, actually not turned out to be the case. The harder part has been the three months since the divorce in actually dealing with all that comes um, after divorcing an alcoholic. And I've really had to turn to Al-Anon and use all of my tools to get through this, with the biggest one being not feeling the need to defend myself to him, his family, for anyone else. So I'd be happy to talk to you more about it, but I just know lots of people are dealing with the decision to stay or go and thought they might want to hear what happens on the other side of divorce. So um, feel free to give me a call. And thanks so much for your show. It's been so helpful. I've listened to it, all the episodes since January 5th of last year, and it's just been so helpful for me. So thanks, Spencer. Bye-bye. And thanks for, thanks for the uh, suggestion, Christy. Uh, and uh, wow, offering to, to uh, be on the podcast about it, that would be great. Thanks. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show. We do have expenses that run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like, well, nobody did this week. But thanks for all of those of you who have in the past. And thank you all for your support, whether it's Recommending the podcast to your friends, just send them to therecoveryshow.com or just listening. Thanks. We're here for you. And uh, one more song, Ben a Son by Nirvana. Uh, and the description I found says, if you've never felt quite accepted in your own family, chances are your parents had different expectations. At least that's what Kurt Cobain thinks in his tale of family dysfunction, where everything you should have become is the result of your not being a son. Whatever your shortcomings, this song of should is, should help ease the blow of returning home for the holidays, even if nobody wants you there anyway. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.